The Bain Free Radio Hour. On the podcast, deals on Esther Friesner ebooks, and we continue our ongoing audiobook serialization of Timothy Zahn's Cobra. All right now. Welcome to the Bain Free Radio Hour. It's a pleasure to have you along. I am Bain Associate Editor and your podcast host, David Afsharirad. This week, we bring you part two of our roundtable discussion on the new Worlds of Honor anthology, What Price Victory, led by Sean Patrick Hazlett, who was joined by David Weber, Jane Linskull, Joel Presby, Jan Kotek, and Thomas Pope. But first, the news. Here at Bain, we love ebooks and we know you do too. So, to celebrate the release of Chicks and Tank Tops, edited by Jason Cordova, we're offering discounts on the classic anthologies edited by Esther Friesner that started it all. For the month of January, it's the Esther Friesner Anthology ebook sale. We will offer $1 off the Chicks in Chainmail series, and as a bonus, we're also discounting the anthologies in Friesner's Supernatural Suburbia series. Discounts are good through the end of the month and apply wherever Bain ebooks are sold. And that's it for the news. Yeah, when you were writing this story, uh, there's obviously a tremendous and voluminous body of work that just for the you know the honorverse and that you have to have knowledge about how did that process work with with um david with tom with everybody involved in terms of making sure that you got a timeline that was consistent there were no anachronisms there were there were uh you didn't contradict things that were in the past because especially with the, the fan base that you have, David, right? Somebody, somebody will find any inconsistencies and they will let you know. Oh right? yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> so, so you get this assignment, Jan, it's, you know, no pressure. How, how did that work from a, you know, kind of the tactics of that? I think it worked well. I still cherish the little note that Tom left in the book that, all the ship names appear to be very consistent with the types of like what ship class is named after and so of and he said, so you probably know your stuff or I happened to send you the ship list and I forgot about it. So I think it was the second option, yeah. So, <laughs> uh, and, I remember, and I remember that the, the super dreadnought that the renegade heavenite officer commands is named scimitar in the book and there's like first note like you know that's the not not a name for the heavenite ship of the line and then at the in the second half of the story they someone mentions well the villain renamed the ship to scimitar (laughs) okay 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 well and i've I've spent a lot of time too working through these things with, with the anthology books and even sometimes in david's writing i mean david david is it will surprise everyone to hear not perfect. Um, I know that this is amazing, uh, but occasionally there will be a mix up. And so I, I work really hard to figure out how how to make that true uh, because I'd rather not retcon things that I don't have to, so. And has anything ever slipped? 
Oh yeah. Oh never, <laughs> never, 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 never. Uh, oh yeah. Well, okay. The one of the okay two things that uh, just one of them came to light a long time ago, which was that I had missed. I dropped a decimal point or two when I originally calculated the density for the ships in the universe, which is why they were as long as they were in the original stories and why you haven't seen any real references to their length or anything since because Tom and the I were like the sizing of which we shall not speak yes because they would have had the density of styrofoam you know to be that size and that tonnage and it was more important that they have the tonnage because of the way I'd set up the technology that they then that they have the physical dimension so we had to go one way or the other the other one is that there is an editing error uh, a typo error in Field of Dishonor, uh, which is that the duel that Honor fights with Somervale at 40 meters is at 20 meters, not 40 meters, the way that the story says that it is. Okay, and that's my fault because I decided I was going to change how that duel was fought. It started, they were going to fire first at 40 meters and then move closer and then move closer. And I decided that I wanted Honor to take him down the way that she did. And 40 meters is half a football field. Okay. Uh, so I changed it in my head and in the way that I wrote the scene but the 40 meters never got changed. So I'm actually revisiting that in a current book. And, and I'm going to have an author's note that says, guys, I know this is not, but this is the way it was supposed to be the first time around. Tim has, uh, Tom has, has saved me from quite a few things like that uh, over the years. Um, and, and missed some too. Yeah, well, okay. But I mean, you know, that's on me where they got missed. Um, the problem is, Poole Anderson once said, uh, you know, perfect consistency is possible only for the Almighty, and a careful reading of Scripture will suggest that even he dropped a stitch or two along the way. Um, that's not exactly the way that Poole put it, but that's that's what he was talking about. And when you have a literary universe that extends over as many novels and, and short stories as the universe does, there are going to be continuity errors. There are going to be consistency errors. You just can't avoid it. Um, and I think overall, we've done a remarkably good job uh, in the universe of holding those to a minimum. And a lot of that, a lot of credit for that goes to Bunine and to, to Tom uh, in, in particular. Um, I've gotten to the point where I just routinely go, as a matter of fact, I was consulting the Bunine radio files just yesterday while I was working away here, Tom, um, on on uh, ship names and when the when the the, the noblesse uh, class became available because I needed that for where I was in the story. Well, I have that now. Uh, I have when that class of destroyers was laid down, when the last unit was laid down, and I can go and I can check and be sure that I stay stay consistent. I'd One like of to, the I want to I want to put in a, a small thing, which is that um, every so often I will just throw in a placeholder name, like in one of the stories I named uh, a bunch of small ships after my cats, and Weber decided he liked that. So there are now a bunch of honorverse ships named after 
they have very strange names because they're the names of my cats. <laughs> the Quahi class. But I had, <laughs> but I had to, yeah, the Quahi class, etc. Quahi was a very nice cat. Um, so, and that's, Quahi is actually a form of Pueblo pottery, um, <laughs> black and white pottery. But, but it's, so it, it is fun working in the universe because I'll toss something in and say, you know, change it to fit your need. I just needed to call it something other than chip A or I would get, yeah. it wouldn't seem real to me. And then every so often his sense of whimsy, we can't leave out the fact that I think one of the things that makes the honor verse so cool is the sense of whimsy. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, I guess, you know, it's just like Robespierre. I mean, I couldn't help myself there, you know. <laughs> Now, I, I will confess, I will confess, I was working just as hard as I could to keep everybody looking at the French Revolution because I intended all along to go somewhere else entirely. Mm-hmm. So I was shameless, the tennis court of the Committee for Public <laughs> Safety. <laughs> ah, okay, yeah, sure, obviously, this is going to be the French Revolution, right, right, right? Wait, he just blew up Napoleon. I mean, you know, that was that was what I was had in mind all along. Mm-hmm. I don't know why people think I'm devious. I, you know, I have no idea, you know, but. Yeah. Speaking of the the how we like managed to not go far off, I remember one discussion. It was not about like tech, hardware stuff, but more about personal stuff. Because one of the characters is a spook. He works for the Office of Naval Intelligence, and his cover is that he behaves like a jerk. And he and he seems like he's been in the role for so long that he's become the role. And we've had discussions with David, like what how it works in the Royal Manticore Navy, how much he can get away with. Because mm-hmm. even, even Earth military organizations differ in these things a lot. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So like, what's the proper, like for honors about like talking back to your CO or not, not even his CO, just a superior mm-hmm. officer. Yeah, and, yeah. And so what we did was he gets, the, the hammer fell on him earlier than expected and, <laughs> and then he has to say what who and what he is you know? he has to he has to fess up a lot earlier than he planned on. <laughs> <laughs> now jan for readers who are looking to get this anthology how would you describe your story so if you had to kind of like a three sentence pitch what would they how would you describe it? What would they t- you know, take away from it? I'll say the macro story is adventure in Silesia in the, like, I, I hope in the tradition of uh, honor among enemies. And the micro story is dealing with loss and learn, just learning to keep on and realizing that the pain is not going away. It's just, you learn to live with it, which happened to many of us in different circumstances in our life it doesn't even have to be so extreme as uh, what happened to Eve. yeah now you mentioned at the beginning of this interview or at some point in this interview that your 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 background uh in check and uh you know growing up in eastern europe informed the development or the kind of the world building in silesia uh, to say a little bit more about that. I'm I'm intrigued by that notion. Like, what aspects? What without? Because uh, I don't want to generalize, but you know, yeah. I'm more than happy yeah. to allow you to generalize. Yeah, I did it because we chicks like to make fun of ourselves. And I would say first that uh, 
Czech Republic is actually not Eastern Europe, it's Central Europe. Prague is yeah. more <laughs> west than Vienna is, you know. But but I understand it as a country of former Eastern Bloc. Yeah. And and I and of course for those viewers who don't know, Silesia is actually part of both Czech Republic and Poland. It's like a historical region that's now divided into these two countries. And so when when Czechs and I assume Poles as well read Honorverse for the first time, they were like, wow, there's a Silesian confederation and it's very corrupt. Wow. <laughs> How could this be? <laughs> of course, like there is there is corruption in every system. There is probably more political corruption in uh, Czech Republic than in some Western countries, probably. And the more East you go, the more corruption <laughs> there is. And it was just a few days ago, I've been talking about this with my Ukrainian guests. For those of you who don't know, I have uh, several Ukrainian refugees in my house since March. And we've been toasting to New Year's and we've been talking about corruption and the father of the family said, well, the problem is that we have lots of corruption there and we hope that after the war the corruption would no longer be there. And I said, well, in Czech Republic, we also have corruption. He said, and he says, and I quote, yeah, but in Czech Republic, it's like this, and in Ukraine, it's like this. So, and of course, in Russia, it's even more like that. So the general rule of thumb is the more east you go, the more corruption there is, unless you go to east and then you are in Alaska, and you probably know better than me about the corruption in Alaska. <laughs> well, the Russians did own Alaska for quite some yeah. time until like yeah, 1867 yeah. or... Well, I think okay. a, a lot of the the uh, <clears throat> corruption in the honorverse, whether you're in Silesia or somewhere else, <clears throat> is oligarchical in nature. Um, the um, we have our own versions of corruption in in Western societies. Uh, the fact that we have uh, a greater tradition of uh, of uh, openness and exposing them to sunlight helps uh but it they've always been there they and they will always be there in any human society there are people who are going to be in a position to game the rules to get an unfair advantage over other people um one of the things that's important to me in the books is that i don't define characters in terms of victimology they may find themselves in these situations where they're dealing with overt corruption. They may be victims of the corruption, but they don't see themselves as they're not putting the responsibility for the bad things happening in their lives off on other people. If you follow what I'm saying, or if they do, they're fighting back. Um, and I think that uh, Silesia, um, I deliberately structured Silesia to be a bone of contention between my Prussian Chinese and and the and the 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 Anticor. well okay what a bunch of folks from the U.S. and Ukraine in the 23rd century thought England had been like when they were setting it up, um, and that's one reason why I named the the region what I named it. Um, and then there was a sort of um, inertia in the name 
that drew it more and more along a certain trajectory uh, in the development of the stories. But yeah, I think I think Jan has has a very valid point about why Silesia seems to have resonated with a lot of my readers from Central and Eastern Europe. Uh, I've gotten a lot of correspondence from them uh, over the years about that. And I would add to Sean's question, I think the, the type of corruption is different because the original circumstances were different. And in the former Eastern Bloc, after the various revolutions, we had the one in 1989, it's lots of people could uh, get rich really fast by being first. I think the first billionaire in Russia was someone who was just delivering toilet paper to Moscow and in 1991 and became a billionaire like in a few months. And, and so recently, our, not getting into that, but we had a prime minister who's owned 80% of Czech agriculture because he was one of the first and he was in a position to buy lots of stuff after the revolution. And with that much like cloud, uh, he could buy political power. And I think that's a similar situation that slowly is happening in Silesia. Yeah. And also like Silesian is, was originally a confederacy, so it did not have a unified foreign policy or anything resembling that, right? Yeah, yeah. one of the things that differs between Silesia and the current situation, I mean, there are a lot of things that differ obviously in, in Europe, is that Silesia grew up into its level of corruption. And post the, the collapse of the Soviet Union and so forth, those who were in a position to control organs of power under the existing system just translated that in a lot of cases into clout in the new system and used it to take over at the top, okay? In Silesia, it kind of grew from the bottom to reach the same level. Uh, but there are definitely, definitely resonances between the two. I got a little bit too carried away with where I wanted to go with it in uh, Shadow of Victory. Um, that was a book that I wrote because I wanted to write it, and it was also written post-concussion. Uh, so I made a couple of decisions in it that I shouldn't have. One was giving myself an entire planet full of checks and an entire planet full of poles for an English-speaking audience in the same book. Uh, that was, it seemed like a really good idea at the time. And now I can tell I've recovered from the concussion because I still like the book, but I understand why people are like, wait, which planet are we on now? <laughs> I still haven't awesome. listened to the audio book of that, but I do, do uh, pity the poor soul who was narrating. The oh audio. yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I definitely was not thinking in terms of audio books when I did that one. <laughs> All right. Uh, Let's move on to the next story. If wishes were space cutters, Joel, yes. very interesting. It's almost like there's there's a piece of it where it's like, again, I'm going to completely reduce this to something it's not. But it's like there's a piece of social media in space. <laughs> there's a piece of I, I know. Growing up, you grew up in a missionary family. Yes. And there's there's some elements of that in in here, I think. Yeah. Um, so, how how did you come up with this story? What was the inspiration? So, I 
my my intent with this story is that it does stand alone. However, this is actually the third short story in a series. Mm-hmm. Um, my very first um, professional paid story was Grayson Navy Letters Home, which was on Bain.com. And you can you can readers can still get that for free. It's um, the Bain Free Library, uh, 2012. It's the the February story, so it's the the second story out there. And and David Weber and, and Tom Pope were were strongly involved in me having that first professional sale without me actually ever giving it to anyone myself, <laughs> which was another story. But so in in that story, it's about Ensign Cecily Rustin, and she's got a conflict going on with her little sister, Sulia Rustin, that through most of the story, she doesn't know this that all of her private letters are being shared to the entire planet and further. This is, this is so how Sulia's, homicides happen, people. Sulia's <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> definitely the bad guy in that story. And then the sequel story in Worlds of Honor Beginnings is primarily about Ensign Cecily Rustin's roommate, who is um, Ensign Claire Bedlam Lacroix. And the villain for that story is primarily um, her cousin, Noah Bedlam, because the, the situation in Grayson is that there are a lot more women born than men and the men are in charge of the family, including young men in charge of their older female relatives. And there's just a lot of cultural stuff going on there. And yes, it, my background helped inform how I built out all these characters. Um, I am a child of a pastor. Um, my, my parents were missionaries in a country where um, men having multiple wives was common and women were having their lives directed a lot by male relatives more than is at all common in the United States. Um, Also, I'm a US Naval Academy graduate who was a a female military officer. And so experiences from that helped inform these these young race and female officers in most of the universe, it makes no difference if you're male or female or whatever, but in the Grace and Space Navy at this time period, there are few female military service members of any kind. And so those two stories are so in the military side. But now in this story, I, I got to have so much fun. So I got to take the two villains from those two stories and give them more background for why they didn't really think they were villains. And I I do admit that there are a lot of people who are still gonna think that Sulia is a villain because she's she's all kinds of special. He's <laughs> 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 trying, he has been trying all along. Yeah, I think it I think special that he had to be head of household for, yeah. for eight people at age 13. Yes, 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 yes. Uh, well, I have to say, um, I built Grayson initially for several reasons. But one was that my feeling is that feminist science fiction set a thousand years in the future is dumb. Okay. Uh, because 
and I've said this so many times, okay, by the time Honor Harrington comes along, the question of, of gender sexual equality is going to have all the burning relevance for the people of Honor's time that Pharaoh's policy towards the Hittites has for us. Okay, one way or the other, it's going to be a done deal. All right, with that much time and effort put into it. Now, I personally, knowing a lot of women, am pretty sure which way this is going to break down in the end, because if it doesn't, they'll all get guns and, you know, kind of thing. But uh, having said that, Grayson does a lot of things for me. But one of the things that it does is it gave me uh, a, an arena in which Honor could actually do some of that grappling with with gender-based issues and so forth that were not going to be part. My view is that the most effective way to advocate for gender equality is to assume that it is a done deal in the in the universes that you create. Nobody outside Grayson, no one has ever questioned Honor's fitness to command a starship because she happens to be female. Mm -hmm. Okay. And to me, that's like the most remarkable thing is that the dog didn't bark in the night, if if you know what I'm saying here. But that that's that's where this this is. But the other thing was that the Graysons the Graysons are a really interesting bunch. I when I first presented them in honor of the Queen, everybody hated them. By the midpoint of the book, they're kind of like, well, maybe they're not so bad. At the end of it, it's like, you Graysons go. <laughs> you know? Um, and and I've had a lot of fun with that side of it. Joelle has developed some aspects of it further than I have because Honor is looking at it from the outside coming in. She's become a Grayson. She's she understands her Graysons and they understand her, but she wasn't born a Grayson. And so she didn't have to deal with what Noah and 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 Sulia are are dealing with here. Okay. The closest I came to that is in my character Abigail Hearns, mm -hmm. really. Um, and Abigail is a stedholder's daughter. Yeah. And so she's at the top of society Entirely looking down. different social level. <laughs> yeah, what Joelle has done is she has gone into the lower strata of Grayson in a way that I really haven't done in the honor-centric novels because of where honor operates. And I think it's been incredibly valuable, and I think she's done a really good job with it. Yeah, I was particularly struck by just the thought process behind the, the social welfare system. Like which things to go, like how they were using bank accounts to spend as fast as possible. But it wasn't like, it, it was nuanced in a way that it was all based on incentives. Like, of course you would do it this way because it's the most efficient. Why would you do it any other way? And the change Just that Noah has. stupid. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> exactly. And, it, and it, doesn't mean, it doesn't mean that they're evil either, that they're on the social welfare system. They're just responding to incentives. And I thought- that came across very objectively in terms of the how the characters behaved. And, and that, just another random question. I think they're stupid just because they're poor. <laughs> well, of course, of course. Also yeah. Fun. yeah. Well, well, that is raises. Uh, so there's another completely random question. What is, what is with uh, this changing the air filters? Like this mostly, where, <laughs> no, where did that if, come from? If you're, if you're on a, if you're on a navy ship. It, you have to change air filters a lot or your equipment stops working. And most likely if you are on a 
a space station that is just being built up, just being constructed, you also need to change filters a lot so that your air stays breathable. And also, I, so that, that's the, the technical answer. The real answer is story-wise, I needed something that a couple of 17 year olds could reasonably do. And that a reason why people at this tech level level would not already have a system that goes and does it for them. And so it's just that it's new. There are bots that go around and do this, but the programming's not perfect yet because things are being built, but it is a thing that matters and it's important and they can have all their fights and conflicts and, and their Deacon Roundhouse can be using this not made up actual necessary work as a training tool to try to make these teenagers in, into something more while he's also dealing with his own demons and having mm -hmm. situations that that are active enough to get the cover of this, <laughs> this anthology i'm pretty sure that's deacon roundhouse right there i believe it is and i i will i will not tell you whether or not he survives that because you got to read the story well and I, I thought that was also nicely done where you had people who would ex who'd experience trauma in different ways and yeah. how they responded to it, particularly with Deacon Roundhouse. You want yeah. to say more about that? Um, he was he was largely inspired by um, by 9-11 folks. Um, I was at the United States Naval Academy when 9-11 happened. And, you know, social socially as a culture, the focus is on the Twin Towers. But um, when you're in the military at a time when there's not a draft, uh, a lot of families are at service academies who have parents who are active duty officers and working at the Pentagon, which also got attacked, and who, who are retired military officers now in airplanes, including airplanes that were, their parents were hopefully dead before they, they impacted the towers. But so the, the, the trauma of needing to repress what has happened because you have we think a war to go fight with we don't know who which is kind of how oyster bay was at that point and so the the people who, who survived and were going on and doing their things but also knowing a lot of people who died having relatives all of that i i tried to put that emotion in there and and make it believable and instead of so it has there are the real aspects but you kind of have to tame it down so people will buy it and yeah i leave it to the reader to to, to well, say which way it goes for them something that a friend of mine uh in the military said to me right after 9 11 um and i imagine there's probably quite a few people in ukraine who are feeling this way right now he said basically the reason that we put on the uniform is so that shit like that doesn't happen to the people we love yeah and he said and and it happened yeah okay uh so i think that's a lot of what joel is is getting at here but again it goes back to what i said earlier about the costs that are associated with with this kind of it's really it's a life hammering experience. It's not just a life changing experience uh, when you get into something like this. Um, and you do, you survive or you don't. 
And if you do, you just have to keep going. Uh, that's another friend of mine said to me, you know, I get up every morning, I put one foot in front of the other. Um, and that's how I deal with the, the people that I've lost. Uh, and, you know, I don't want, the books are not supposed to be downers. Okay, they're supposed to celebrate the human spirit. They're supposed to celebrate the ability to to survive and to still be loving, compassionate human beings who care, because I think that's very important also. But the triumph has meaning primarily if you know what you're triumphing over, what you're surviving to get there. And I think that the deacon is a really good, Eve is a really good uh, example of that. Um, and Stephanie and Carl, in a way, because Carl more than Stephanie are coming out of the plague years and, and Carl's, the, the death of the young woman that everybody assumed, including Carl, that eventually he would be marrying right at the end of the plague years. Um, I don't know that I want to, do the worst possible thing I can think of to my characters for them to learn from. But I think that in in some ways, you know, whoever said life is pain in The Princess Bride, I think, Wesley says mm -hmm. that to Buttercup. Um, there's some truth to that. Uh, the question is, what do you do with the pain? Does the pain rule you? Or do you rule the pain? And the deacons, the deacons jury was out on that at the beginning of this story, I think. Um, but anyway, sorry. Like I said, they're not supposed to be doubters. So I'm not going <laughs> to go any further with that. <laughs> yeah, and it's and I don't want to give away too much, but it's certainly. I, I, I mean, I personally would characterize the the ending as a is not a downer, um, and and I think there's definitely lessons learned in the story mm -hmm. and characters change and evolve and, and become better for the experience. Oh, they so, grow. They grow. Especially since when you're reading at the beginning, you're like, who am I supposed to like here? <laughs> Nobody. <laughs> <laughs> and, and toward the end, you, 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 you feel a little bit more. I, I uh, think you can like Deacon from the beginning. Well, yeah. 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 But, but I would say the, the, the two characters I'm talking about, are Noah and, Noah and uh, Miss Ruskin. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Like, how, and, how can they both lose? I want that one. <laughs> and, and and Celia, well, Celia is probably the hardest one <laughs> to, <laughs> to like, to be honest. Um, but even, even at the end, you know, I think there's, yeah. you know, again, oh, another, yeah. another story where you show the like where an author shows full humanity right the good and the bad right yeah. when so, tony weisskopf was talking about this anthology at, at liberty con I, I i believe she said that that sulia was one of the, the characters she's hated most in quite a while <laughs> <laughs> i don't i don't know is that a good thing the way she said it, it wasn't immediately clear whether she was talking about the character or about me personally. So I had to ask just to make it sure that it was said out loud that she was not hating Joelle Presby. <laughs> of course not. Of course not. I, I just wanted that to be heard by the audience. <laughs> just for clarification, that wasn't about me. That was about Celia. Okay. Okay. All right. So 
let's let's move on to the to the uh, final story, which I want to make sure I I've looked at it like eight times, but first victory. Yeah. And uh, this is a classic tale of basically every person who's experienced conflict in a in a family and it gets quite uh, unhinged is not the, the right word but people can be stubborn oh yeah <laughs> you know, i think that's probably an under, understatement uh particularly stubborn people being stubborn that's kind of the the tagline for this one honor so, comes by her stubbornness naturally okay <laughs> yeah i would say There, okay, Allison Harrington has always been one of my favorite characters. Um, I've always been, you know, just I've loved Allison, you know, and and Allison has her blind spots. Allison never really realized how homely Honor thought she felt. Okay, and she never realized that a lot of that was because Honor is half again her mother's height, and her mother is this petite, gorgeous you know, kind of thing. And here's Honor, the overgrown horse whose adolescence is stretched out for 25 years because of the generation of prolong that she has. It never clicked for Allison. And Honor never told her parents what happened at the academy because she didn't feel that she could discuss it with her mom. Okay, if Allison had known what had what had happened, okay. And that, it sort of reflects in in the opposite direction. Okay, my son Michael and I were having a, a discussion. Okay, and he left the room, and I said, "Come back here. We're not done." And he said, "Why you don't love me anyway?" And I said, "What?" He said, "You don't love me the way you love the girls." And I said, whoa, 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 whoa. Where is this coming? He says, you hug them all the time. You never hug me. And I said, Michael, have you ever seen me rub the girl's hair? And he said, like, no. And I said, that's how my dad hugged his boy children. And I thought you knew that that was how I was hugging you. And it had totally gone past him. And I had totally not realized that it was. Okay, now that was a critically important conversation that we had that has been incredibly constructive for both of us. Okay, but that's one of the things that I was looking at here in terms of the situation between Allison and her mother. Okay, um, and as Jacques says, what was God thinking when he put the two most stubborn women in the universe in the same family? Okay, I mean, because he, God being me in this instance, did just that. All right. And these are two people who love each other dearly and who just wound each other horribly, okay? And it's complicated by the fact that Allison cannot explain to her mother in a way that her mom would understand the nature of her relationship with Alfred, okay? Yes, I love him, that she can communicate. But the fact is, and I don't, know that I have made this adequately clear in the books, the only reason that neither that neither Alfred nor Allison was ever adopted by a tree cat is that slot is taken in the relationship the two of them have. 
And the fact that they have that relationship is a lot of why Honor has the depth of the link that she has with Nimitz further down the road, because the, it was reinforced in her. And Raul's going to be in for a heck of a ride before this is all over with the tree cats. But um, the, 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 the problem is that her mom cannot understand that Allison genuinely does not want what her mom wants for her because it is so manifestly what she should want okay and so there's a little bit of the reverse of that with honor and allison and one of the reasons that it never occurs to allison to think about what honor self-image is is that she is so involved in helping honor decide who honor wants to be who honor needs to be that communication flow is there honor has an awesomely secure childhood with the two parents that she has and nimitz but it's so secure that it doesn't occur to allison that there's part of it that might not be do you see what I'm saying? And that's because it's the flip of her relationship with her mom. Um, and it's it's really, you know, uh, Jacques and Carl are like, how do we fix this? And the answer is, you can't. Okay. I mean, it's just, but that's why, despite the fact that Honor is related to one of the first family of Beowulf in a lot of respects, she grows up thinking of herself as a yeoman's daughter with no connections to the high and mighty anywhere because mm -hmm. her mom is so determined that she's not going to be one of the, the Beowulf, Benton Ramirez, he choose. And yes, people do say Gesundheit to them a lot when they introduce themselves. I just couldn't help myself with Carl doing that with Jan. Um And that part of honors character dna was always there for me but i had never developed it for the readers so this gave me an opportunity this and uh, beauty and the beast in the previous anthology gave me an opportunity to build out the characters of alfred and allison in a way that i hadn't been able to before because People sometimes miss the fact that the, the Honorverse novels are not about Honor Harrington. Okay, I, heresy, I know. But the thing is that Honor is the window into the universe. Honor and the characters around her. And it's what they do living in that universe that matters to the reader. Okay, so I'm not trying to minimize the importance of Honor Harrington or any of the people in her life or anything but the stories are about the entire this entire universe and the people who live in it not a single select group of them that's how i visualize them okay and these characters are the people you care about they're the window into this greater world kind of thing that i've got going over here on on the side and it's it's a world that would be meaningless without characters to put on the stage Okay, in that sense, no matter how good your world building is, it's the platform that the stories happen in. But that's why I'm so delighted to have Tim and Tom and, and Jane filling in this early point of the Star Kingdom and why having Joelle helping to build out the Graysons and, and, and Jan working with what's going on over here in Silesia 
to me, that's more of the same of what I've been doing all along, but with different perspectives, different voices, different takes. And sometimes they illuminate for me aspects of the original concept that I hadn't really realized were there or, or dealt with, dwelt upon. Okay. I remember I had somebody come up to me at a con and explain to me why I'd done something in a book. And he was totally out to lunch, except that I realized when he was done that he nailed it because it was an inevitable outcome of the way I'd built the character and the situation that I'd put them in. But it wasn't the reason that I had thought it was happening in the story. Okay, I had looked at it as I'm building this macro event going down, and he was looking at it as the macro event that was the result of the micro events going on inside the characters. And from the writing process, he was actually more correct than I was. Do, do you follow what I'm saying? Yeah. And these anthologies let me do that on an even greater scale by getting these additional viewpoints, these additional voices uh, in. Um, <clears throat> and it's always fascinating to me to watch the ripples, okay? Um, especially since, as I say, I do my best to incorporate the things that happen into the, into the anthologies, into the canon as we go along. For the very first anthology, there's two stories that never got incorporated into canon. Uh, one was David Drake's and uh, one was uh, Roland Green's uh, because the technology and so forth that they had visualized was not really where the universe was going kind of thing, if you follow what I'm saying. Uh, but everything else has pretty much been fitted into the mosaic and I think has enriched it uh, in, in the process, which is sort of straying a little afield from final vic from first Vic. i will say this the only thing that i will say because obviously this everybody knows that allison and her mom got reconciled down the road okay i will just say that in many respects it's honor's fault they get reconciled okay and and i'll just i'll just leave it at that uh at at this point except to say that there's a whole huge amount of support work <laughs> that has to be done <laughs> to get this. I think the very first story, the very first line in the story is something in the lines of, Mother, I, you really don't want to go here with this. <laughs> this jock warning his mom to do not have this conversation with Allison. It won't end well. And her mom's saying, nonsense, it's my job. And I'm like, I will guarantee you any number of mothers and daughters, fathers and sons reading the, that those first two sentences are like, oh, my God, I know where this is going. Weber. Yes, ma'am. Your mother's first name is? Alice. Well, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> well, exactly. if you'll notice. Who is what is what is the name of the uh, heroine in Path of the Fury? Mm -hmm. Alicia. Okay, yeah. so yeah, that name has cropped up a time or two. Uh, well, I, I think I think you know I've known you since I had dark hair and you had hair. Thank um, you, thank you, Jay. <laughs> and I think it's worth noting that when Weber got started on these books, he had been a business partner with his mother, and um, when I met him. 
he would refer to her as Alice because since they had been business partners, as he said to me, we couldn't exactly go to meetings and, client. <laughs> and say, mom. Um, and when I, when you guys all probably weren't hatched, you know, or, or reading when the first Honorverse books came out. But when I moved to New Mexico nearly 30 years ago, uh, they were just beginning to gain steam. And I ran into a person who will remain nameless who, because she would be embarrassed. But I went to her house and, she's, and I saw on Basilisk Station on a table and she was like, I was like, oh, you've read that. And, and, and she said, oh yes, yes, it's great. And everybody's talking about who is this David Weber? People figure it's gotta be a pain, pen name for a woman because he does such great female characters. And I, <laughs> I'm like, well, actually, I know him really well. He's uh, actually like six foot four and no, it's not a pen name for a woman. But I think this is a very, it's, it's interesting because Joelle talked about her family background and how it fed into her stories. Jan talked about his story and how where he grew up fed into his stories. I think it's interesting to note that Weber's very positive relationship with a lot of strong-minded women in his life um, really is part of what makes his feminist honor verse work because it's genuine. It's from the heart. It's not from the head. So there. Well, I, I, think, I think that I get asked a lot, okay, yo, you don't have two X chromosomes. You know, how do you do this kind of thing here? How do you write these strong, convincing, capable women? And I hope you I don't answer them, like Jack Nicholson did in that movie. No, no, I tell them I don't. <laughs> I tell them that I write strong, competent, capable human beings who happen to be female. Okay. Um, and I think that's got to be how you do it. Um, and I don't know. I, I think that my two, my, my three strengths as a writer, um, and I'm not trying to rank these in priority because the priority depends on what I'm doing at the moment. But one is world building. I love world building. And I try to think about the logical consequences of the things that I build in at the time I build them in so that I don't suddenly find myself having to produce God weapon number three to solve a problem, uh, you know, out of left field or whatever, or that kind of thing. Okay. So that's one. Um, and uh, a, my second strength, I think, is the fact that I can get inside characters' heads. Um, and I try to think about, when I build the character, I try to think about what are these characters' attributes going to be. And for me, once I've built the character, the character tells me how the character is going to react in a given set of circumstances. Okay, I don't have to structure the circumstances to get the reaction that I want. I structure the circumstances and then get the reaction I'm going to get, if, if you follow what I'm saying. And I think the third is probably that I do do battle scenes better than a lot of people, that I can keep the, the, the multiple viewpoints in a battle in the air for the reader. Unless, like in the ebooks, they drop out the extra lead between shifts of viewpoint. So that you don't know when you jumped from one bridge to the other kind of thing, which makes life a little complicated. But 
every successful writer has to have those capabilities in in one blend or another okay and the b- particular blend that i have the men produced the honorverse all right there are people out there who i think are every bit as good a writer as good a world builder as i am who never had the the the, the series catch fire the way the honorverse did Okay, trust me, I am very well aware of that. And I think it's a mistake to try and over-refine on how that happened for me or for anybody else, okay? Because you have to do what works for you as as a writer. You can't say, how would David Weber tell this story? How would Jane tell this story? How would How would... John or Joel or Tom and Tim, how would they tell the story? You have to tell the story the way that works for you. Um, and if it works for you, it will work for other people too. Now, how many people it will work for may vary, but but that's who you have to be if you're going to succeed at this craft. And everybody who's in this anthology did exactly that. Okay. Um, and for me, this, this, this uh, first victory I like the people involved in it, but to me, this micro story is just as important to me as any of the macro story where empires are clashing with one another in the books. Okay. I want it to be that way for the reader too. All right. Because bottom line, Despite what I said about honor and her friends being the window into the honorverse, okay. Stories are like war. They're fought by human beings. If we don't care about the human beings, if we don't care about the characters involved, then we don't care about the story. And if the author doesn't care about the characters, the reader won't care about the characters. And so you have to be willing to invest in the characters that you're writing about on a level that 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 when I read some passages aloud at cons, my voice breaks, despite the fact that I wrote it, because I care about the characters in that passage. Okay. And I know I know what I did to them. I know what 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 they're what they're dealing with here. And if you can't, as a writer, if you can't do that. For yourself, you can never do it for the reader. Um, and and I think that that's, to me, that's a core strand of of all of the stories in this anthology. Um, and that's one reason why the title is "What Price Victory," uh, because everybody involved here is paying a price to achieve the victory or in Jin Sohn's case, not <laughs> achieve the victory. Um, that that um, is, is key to what makes us care about characters. Okay. I mean, you know, and that's wandered far, truly and far afield from, from uh, first victory I, in some ways, I guess. But it's one reason why I'm so satisfied with this anthology at the end of the day. Um, I just think it works on a lot of levels. 
I definitely agree with that. Now, folks can get the eARC now, I believe, at the at the Bain website. Um, you can also all the books come. The book comes out on February seventh, so definitely check that it's out. Time for Valentine's Day. <laughs> Good That's thinking. right. Yes, yes. <laughs> That's right. That's if you're right. trying to figure out what to give that man in your life or or the woman who likes science fiction, this is a great book. Yeah, well, Sharon, uh, Sharon's, you know what Sharon's getting for Valentine's Day? longer than roses. Huh? <laughs> she's getting a CRV hybrid. That's what she's getting for Valentine's Day. Now, I told her it's also her anniversary present, so she better... <laughs> <laughs> you know, but I was like, I was like, oh my God, yes. But anyway, uh, yes, we are coming out just in time about, and it'll cost, it'll cost a lot less than the CRV hybrid. So, yeah. <laughs> all right. Uh, any final words? Yeah, I think other people should have final words. I've had a lot of words. My final words yeah. were the Valentine's Day gift suggestion. Good move. I would. I would like to recommend to everyone to please read Joelle Presby's first novel, The Bar Snake Launcher. It's great. Uh, it it's brings to it a lot of the things that we've been talking about valuing today, which is uh, really well-realized uh, characters, really, really well, and great from the point of view of me who loves to write from the alien point of view even though all of her characters are humans and all of them live on a recognizable near future earth, she so brilliantly captivate, captures what it is to be from different cultures and how there are some wonderful people in this book, all of whom run in circles, not to crash into what their perception is of what another culture expects of them, which is just phenomenal. Um, and uh, so I just want to, I really want to say that I, Weber has known me long enough to know I don't say nice things if I don't mean them. <laughs> and so if I'm babbling here about this book, you can, you can take it as a strong recommendation that it's really, really, really fun and good and smart. And it also has in the person of, do you say it as Uncle Benoit or Uncle Benoit? Uh, Benoit. <laughs> Benoit, French one Evelyn. of the singularly most despicable villains <laughs> you'll have the pleasure of meeting. So that's, that's my final word. Also, I'd like to say that Deception on Griffin, um, the story in my story in this anthology, uh, will is actually um, proving to be a very important turning in point in Stephanie's point of view of herself and the person she is. So... <clears throat> Um, as I've been writing the follow-up for it in the next, as yet untitled, uh, Star Kingdom book, I've been very interested to see this short story written a long time ago um, is having all sorts of really interesting ripple effects. So I'm pretty f excited. Thank you. <laughs> what she said. Um? What she said. <laughs> I've just really enjoyed working with everybody here, um, some of you more than others, but it's it's been a pleasure and I really enjoy seeing all of the all of the different nuances that everybody's bringing um, to pieces of the honorverse. Uh, you know, the way Jane brings this feeling of the frontier that we haven't really captured well. But, you know, when we're looking at Manticore back in these days, Manticore has maybe 1.5 million people across the entire system 
when she's writing these books. I mean, it was devastated and it wasn't very big to begin with. And it's growing rapidly. Uh, and so just capturing that feeling and and to see how Joelle just sort of perfectly builds out the way Grayson works. And she and I have had many conversations about that. And I've added many, many bits to the tech, various tech Bibles about how how things fit together because she's she's thought about this so well. And the way Jan is building out this Legion Confederacy. And, and I love this because it's, you know, I, 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 you know, I keep a lot of the, a lot of the lore of the universe and I try to keep the everything together and, and having all of these insights and all these extra pieces is just, is, is wonderful for me because it's, it's, you know, it, it builds out and I can take things from there and kind of spin off of, on them and, and, and help keep building and, and keep supporting where I can. And, and what you do, uh, Tom, it's incredibly important and useful to, to all of us who are putting the stories together. Because like I said, you know, it's, I think, I, I honestly think, all due modesty, I honestly think that the Honorverse has done a much better job of maintaining continuity and consistency through its, through its span uh, than the vast majority of science fiction universes even that are much smaller in terms of total word count and so forth um and a very large amount of the credit for that uh goes to tom and and view nine um thank you yeah. I, I just when i realized that i could say okay guys you guys are going to do this and i can tom and i will exchange emails about okay when did we say that we were going to introduce this you know and uh, and that kind of thing um it's just it's an incredible resource for everybody who's ever been involved in uh an honorverse collaboration or one of these anthologies um uh, even if they have not actually collaborated on on novels uh uh with me um and I think I've done a lot of collaborations, okay? And I think I'm, I'm comfortable doing it, okay? But I think a lot of it depends on who your collaboration partners are. Um, and it also depends on the working model that you have doing them and tom is an incredibly integral part of the working model for all the honorverse uh collaborations um and his name really should have been on the cover of the first travis novel but i think the marketing consideration was well we're already throwing two authors at them you know kind of thing but he was he was there from the from the get-go uh and tim and i were so happy uh, when we could get him on the cover too, although I was suddenly outnumbered by people with three-letter first names beginning with T. I was just, yeah. <laughs> but it's, it's the universe has been uh, a fun ride, obviously, for me uh, in a lot of ways. And these folks that I'm sharing the screen with right now are among the reasons that that's been true. Jan, last word. Well, I would just reiterate what everyone else has said. It's been a wonderful experience, and I really enjoyed working with all of you and to build Celestia and to have 
my little adventure with Eve Chandler, which has been a much bigger fun than I expected ever having writing something. And I enjoy writing. I've been doing that for And decades. now you're going to have to do a sequel. <laughs> I'll be happy for it. I'm sure the audience will be happy to read it too as well. Yeah, so. yeah. I told, told David, you know, I've been happy to have like, go back to Eve Chandler and throw something else at her and Celestia. Well, people uh, have been people have been pushing me for a novel dealing with Sarnow and what's going on over there. And we got we got View Nine right here. Okay, I'm just saying this could it could happen. It could happen. Definitely good. And I would again send, say again big thank you to Tom Pope because without him the whole experience would be much more difficult because he's the data bank of honor everything honorverse related and and i will also say that i have while well, i haven't read joel's book yet i already bought it so from the commercial perspective <laughs> <laughs> and it's on the, it's on my pile of books i intend to read fairly soon and i also am happy that this is actually uh this this would be a, there will be a close second anthology where both me and Joel are because Joel is a trooper and she agreed to write a story in my universe in my alternative history books, which are only in Czech, and she didn't let that stop her. And we did, talked, and she learned that universe. And she, well, he did translate it for me. I didn't learn Czech. I never, <laughs> <laughs> he translated it. Yeah, every one of us was thinking, "Do you speak Czech?" <laughs> Well, I was setting you up, Joel, to be able to show you how really wonderful linguist you are, and you did this do do this to yeah, me. You yeah. blew it. You blew it. Yeah. Blew it. Um, okay, and and she did a pretty good job, and the anthology should come out in the next few months, finally. And it's been a long time in the process, but so was this anthology. So, yeah, so I, I right. look forward to be there. And thank you for the ride. Well, well, thank you, everyone. Uh, make sure you pick up this, you know, what price victory at uh, Bain website, Amazon, anywhere else books are sold. The book comes out February 7th. And also pick up the Dabare Snake Launcher since, uh, you know, we might as well we keep mentioning it on the call, which is also available where our books, do we, books do are we have, sold. Do we have a schedule for when the audio book on this one's likely to, to drop? Um, I do not know off the top of my head. I know that, that Bain doesn't really control that, that it's it's the it's the the audiobook producers and the talent and the studio time that's available. But I was just six wondering if months. we know because I've got people asking me. You said it's six, six to nine, nine months, months Joel? Yeah. 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 Okay. All right. Thank you, everyone. And uh, I can't wait for this to hit the stores. And now we bring you Timothy Zahn's Cobra. Earth's only hope was the Cobras. The colony world's Adirondack and Silvern fell to the troughed forces almost without a struggle. Outnumbered and on the defensive, Earth made a desperate decision. It would attack the aliens not from space, but on the ground, with forces the troughs did not even suspect. Thus were created the Cobras, a guerrilla force whose weapons were surgically implanted, invisible to the unsuspecting eye, yet undeniably deadly. 
but power brings temptation and not all the cobras could be trusted to fight for earth alone johnny moreau would learn the uses and abuses of his special abilities and what it truly meant to be a cobra he woke to the impatient buzz of his alarm and as he rubbed the sleep from his eyes the answer popped into his mind for a moment he lay still his mind busy sorting out details and possibilities then, rolling out of bed, he snared his phone and got the operator. Kenneth MacDonald, he told it. The wait was unusually long. MacDonald must have still been asleep. Yes, hello, his voice finally came. It's Johnny, Ken. I know what Chalinor's up to. You do, MacDonald was suddenly alert. What? He's going to take over the Curseage mines. Another long pause. Damn, MacDonald said at last. That has to be it. Over half of Aventine's rare earth elements alone come from there. All he'd have to do is use the mine's explosives cache to doomsday the shafts and entrances. Zhu would have to think long and hard about sending a massive force to evict him. And the longer Zhu hesitates, the weaker he looks, Johnny said. And the more likely some of Chalinor's neutral cobras will see him as the probable winner and shift sides. If enough do that, Zhu'll either have to capitulate or risk civil war. Yeah, damn. We've got to alert Capitalia. Get them to send the force up there before Chalinor makes his move. Right. You want to call them or shall I? It'd be better if we were both on the line. Hang on. Let's see if I remember how to do this. There was a double click. Ariel, the operator said. The Governor General's office in Capitalia, MacDonald told it. I'm sorry, but I am unable to complete the call. Johnny blinked. Why not? I'm sorry, but I am unable to complete the call. Do you suppose the satellite's out of whack? Johnny suggested, hopefully. Not likely, MacDonald growled. Operator, Syndic Powell Stewart's office in Rankin. I'm sorry, but I am unable to complete the call. And Rankin wasn't far enough away to require the communication satellite. So much for coincidence, Johnny said, feeling a knot forming in his stomach. How did Chalinor get to the phone computer so fast? He could have done this any time in the past few days, MacDonald grunted. I doubt if anyone's needed to talk to Capitalia or Rankin lately. Certainly not since the courier ship left. Maybe that's why he sent Almo Pyre with notes instead of calling us from Thanksgiving, Johnny suggested, suddenly remembering. Maybe all out-of-town contacts been halted. Maybe. Listen, I don't like using this phone all of a sudden. Let's meet at Chris's shop in, say, half an hour. Right, half an hour. Johnny clicked off the phone and for a moment he stared at the little box, wondering if anyone had been eavesdropping on the conversation. Unlikely, but if Chalinor could fix the computer to block out-of-town calls, why not also set up something to monitor all in-town ones? Jumping out of bed, he began pulling on his clothes. One of Ariel's two fully qualified electronics technicians, Chris shared a two-floor combination office-shop-storeroom near the roughly circular area in the center of town which was known presumably for historical reasons, as the square. Johnny got there early and waited nervously outside until Chris and MacDonald arrived with the keys. Let's get inside, MacDonald urged, glancing around at the handful of other people that had appeared on the streets as the village began its preparations for the new day. Chalinor may have hired a spy or two in town. Inside, Chris turned on some lights and sank into her workbench chair, yawning prodigiously. Okay, we're here, she said. 
Now, would you care to explain what we needed me to do here on five hours sleep and ten minutes' notice? We're cut off from both Rankin and Capitalia, MacDonald told her. Chaloner's apparently jinxed the phone computer. He went on to describe Johnny's idea about the Kersiage mines and their attempt to alert the authorities. Besides the water route up the Chalk River, the only land routes to the mines are the roads from Thanksgiving and Weald, he explained. Chaldenor is in position to block both of them, and if he can control the river here at Ariel, the Governor-General won't have any way to move in forces or equipment except by air car. Damn him, Chris muttered, her eyes wide awake now and flashing sparks. If he's fouled up all the long-distance circuits, it'll probably take a week to repair the damage. Well, that answers my first question, MacDonald said grimly. Next question. Can you build a transmitter of any kind here that can bypass the operator entirely and run a signal to Capitalia via the satellite? In theory, sure. In practice, she shrugged. I haven't built a high-frequency-focused beam transmitter since my first year at school. It would take at least two or three days' work, even assuming I've got all the necessary equipment. Can you use some of your spare telephone modules, Johnny suggested. That should at least save you some assembly time provided I don't overlap one of the regular frequencies and trigger a squelch reaction from the phone computer, yes. She nodded. Readjusting built-in freak settings may take just as long as building from scratch, but it's worth a try. Good. Get to work. MacDonald turned to Johnny. Even if Chalinor didn't set up a flag to let him know when anyone tries to call Capitalia, we should assume he'll be moving against us soon. We'll need to alert Mayor Tyler and organize whatever we can in the way of resistance. Which is basically you and me, Johnny said. Plus those half-dozen pellet guns Chris mentioned last night. He saw Johnny's expression and shrugged uncomfortably. I know, living clay pigeons, but you know as well as I do that our nanocomputers react more slowly when faced with two or more simultaneous threats. It might just give us the edge we'll need. Maybe. All the ghosts of Adirondack were rising behind Johnny's eyes, civilians getting killed in crossfires. What would we be doing, trying to guard the road from Thanksgiving? MacDonald shook his head. There's no way we can keep them out. They can abandon the road whenever they please if they don't mind having to kill a spine leopard or two on the way into town and don't need to bring in any heavy equipment. No, the best we can hope for is to hold this building until Chris can finish a transmitter that'll bring help from Capitalia. Maybe we should try the innocent approach, too, Chris suggested, looking up from the book of circuit diagrams she'd been paging through. As long as they haven't actually invaded yet, why don't we have someone, Dad, for instance, try to drive through Thanksgiving to Sangral and call Capitalia from there? I doubt if Chalinor's letting any traffic travel east from here, MacDonald said, but it's worth a try. You think your dad would be willing? Sure. She reached for her phone, hesitated. Maybe I'd better just ask him to come over and then explain things once he gets here. Chalinor may have put a monitor in the system. The call took half a minute. Eldyarn asked no questions and said he'd be there right away. As Chris broke the connection, MacDonald started for the door. I'm going to find the mayor, he said over his shoulder. Johnny, you stay here, just in case. I'll be back as soon as I can. That was another installment in Timothy Zahn's Cobra. And that's it for the podcast. Thanks, as always, to Audible.com and podcast theme composer Ruth Judkowitz. Praise, thanks, and gratitude to David Weber, 
Jane Linsko, Joel Presby, Jan Kotek, and Thomas Pope. And good night, Tony Daniel, wherever you are. This is David F. Shirod coming to you from a soundproof bunker somewhere deep in the heart of Texas. Join us here next week at the hammering heart of science fiction and fantasy and keep reaching for the stars. Thank you.